Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance aho. Later on in the show, I'm finding out about glaciers and the state and possible fate of those in the North Island. First up, though, the first baby to be conceived through IVF or in vitro fertilisation was born in 1978. Since then, well over 8 million people worldwide have been conceived through IVF or other reproductive technologies. But there's a high failure rate, and Victoria University of Wellington's Janet Pittman is doing her bit to develop a new test that she hopes will more easily detect embryos carrying too many chromosomes. In the story, Janet and I talk about a video that shows an embryo having cells removed for pre-implantation genetic testing. You'll find a copy of that video on our webpage. Just head to rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld and search for embryo. Here's reproductive biologist Janet explaining her interest in this area. I got interested in aneuploidy in human embryos. So what aneuploidy is, is an incorrect number of chromosomes in a cell. And 50% of human embryos actually have an incorrect number of chromosomes in their cells. And most of them are embryonic lethal. And so what it does is it contributes significantly to pregnancy loss. So that's all those early miscarriages that a lot of women have. That's right, that's the principal cause of those early miscarriages. But actually it becomes a real problem in a fertility clinic, as you can imagine, because they're producing embryos in a culture dish, and 50% of them are never going to equate to a baby. And so there are some, some tests that they do to detect aneuploidy, but they're very invasive. I've actually got a video of one if you'd like to see it. Well, I'd love to have a look, and then we can describe to the listeners what we're what we're looking at. Exactly. But just before we do that, aneuploidy, just explain that a bit more to me. So if that's at the wrong number of chromosomes, I think most people like me would probably think of Down syndrome. That's right. So that is the most common and well-known aneuploidy, and that's because it is a survivable form. And it really is the only survivable form in which individuals live for a long period of time. So in that case, it's, what, three copies of a chromosome instead of two? That's right. So chromosome 21. Um, in Down syndrome people, there are, there are three chromosomes instead of two. That's absolutely right. There's another couple of aneuploidies that are fairly common that you see in a fertility clinic, and that is trisomy. So trisomy means an extra chromosome of chromosome 13 and 18. So trisomy 13, 18, and 21 are the real, I guess, problematic um, aneuploidies because they are not embryonic lethal. So trisomy 13 and 18 actually can develop into a baby, but they generally um, have a very short lifespan of one to two years, which is 
incredibly traumatic, obviously. And then Down syndrome, people have some intellectual and physical limitations as well as some health problems as well. So if you are in a fertility clinic and you've created a number of embryos, how are you going to test whether one of them has aneuploidy? What do you do? So there is a test available which is optional called pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. And so basically these people are consenting to the fertility clinic to undertake this test. And as I mentioned, it is, it's quite invasive. So we have a video of it here. And so what we can see here is this is an embryo. And I'll just take you through um, exactly what the embryo looks like. So this is actually the latest stage of development an embryo can be in in a culture dish. After this point in time, it has to go into a uterus. So how many days old is this then? So this will be uh, around about five to seven days old. So what we have here is, is a blastocyst, which is the latest stage of embryonic development in a culture dish. And we have here a coating around the embryo called uh, zona pellucida. And so to do this test, um, it's basically cutting open the zona pellucida and extracting some cells from the blastocyst. So how many cells does the blastocyst have at it this has, point? It has a lot of cells. So it's multiplied it's, and multiplied. It's multiplied and multiplied. So there are two compartments to a blastocyst. There's sort of this clump of cells in the, in the middle called the inner cell mass. And those cells are destined to become all the tissues in our bodies. So they are what we would call the embryo proper. And then there's a single layer of cells you can see around the outside of this embryo, and that's called the trophectoderm or the trophoblast. And those cells are destined to become the placenta. And those are the cells that they take for the pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. So if we just play this video, what we can see is there's a suction pipette on the other side of the blastocyst that holds it in place. And then you can see this laser cutting through the zona pellucida, and this glass pipette coming in and sucking out, it's generally around four to six uh, trophectoderm cells, so those cells that form the placenta. So those cells will then be popped into a tube um, and sent off to a diagnostic lab for next-generation sequencing usually. It takes quite a lot of time, and, and you can see from this test how intricate it is, and so you have to be very well-skilled in a fertility clinic to be able to perform this test. And so because of all these reasons, it's actually really expensive. It costs over $1,000 per embryo to get tested. Which I imagine would be a barrier to a lot of people. It's a huge barrier, um, and also the invasiveness of the test. And so what that means is that only around 8% of couples that enter a fertility clinic opt in to have this test. So that means in over 90% of the couples or, or individuals that come in to get embryos generated, 50% of those are going to have no chance of developing into a baby. So that must be a significant contribution to what is in fact a low success rate for IVF. That's exactly right. So we could increase the success rate significantly if we can get uh, more of these embryos tested or a better way of testing it. And so one of the disadvantages of this test also is that you can see sort of how traumatic it can be. It's very disruptive for to an the embryo. embryo. That's yeah. right. And so a lot of people are delaying having children. The maternal age of having a child is increasing. We're, we're well into um, the 30s now for the average age of your first child. So unfortunately, um, this also impacts on aneuploidy rate because aneuploidy 
significantly increases with maternal age. And so those women that are actually approaching 40 and above may have a 70 to 80% of their embryos being aneuploidy. Now, when we do these tests on these embryos, they're often a little bit lower quality and they're not quite as resilient as as embryos from, from younger women. And so they can fail due to the test. There's just a higher risk of, of those, lower cl- those lower quality embryos undergoing this kind of testing. So the testing is risky, it's complicated, it's expensive, um, and you are interested in seeing if there are better ways of doing it. That's right. So we have been aware for some time that the embryo communicates with the uterus, so they kind of send these little signals to each other. I guess the embryo is saying, here I'm coming, get ready. And so what they do is they actually get rid of some genetic material in these membrane-enclosed vesicles, and they excrete them out of the cell, secrete them out of the cell. And so what we're wanting to do is see whether we can actually take the media in which these embryos are cultured in and find genetic material in there that will be indicative of aneuploidy. Ah, so you wouldn't have to touch the embryo at all. You wouldn't all. touch the embryo at all. You would just take a little bit of media and and test it for DNA or RNA. How do you go about doing that? So what we're doing, first of all, is seeing if we can detect these membrane-enclosed vesicles in the secretions from embryos. So these are the little signalling bodies, really? These are, yes, that's right. So and, and the really great thing about these little vesicles, and they're called exosomes, is that they completely preserve the contents within them. So there's nothing within an exosome that can destroy the RNA or whatever that, that is in these in these vesicles. And so in actual fact, they are very robust and, and very accurate in the information that they hold. Uh, so we have got a Down syndrome mouse model that we are using for this work. Because you obviously can't work with human embryos. We can't work with human embryos. I do collaborate with Fertility Associates. Um, I'm incredibly lucky to uh, have a PhD student um, in my group who is an ex-clinical embryologist from Fertility Associates, so she brings all of those skills with her. And so what we can do, though, is we can collect media that human embryos have been cultured in. So you're starting the work with your mouse model, with these mouse embryos with Down syndrome, Mm -hmm. and then you're comparing it to what you can get from the human embryo medium. That's right. So what we know so far is that the culture media that we have collected from embryos, not not in particular aneuploid embryos, but just normal embryos, do in fact secrete these exosomes. We have um, measured them. Now what we're wanting to find out is what's in them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to send these exosome contents away for next generation sequencing and that will let us know all of the genes and the numbers of copies of genes within each of these embryos and then what we're going to do is we're going to compare the embryos that have the correct number of chromosomes against the embryos that have um, an abnormal number of chromosomes and in particular in this case those that have that extra chromosome 21. So we're really interested in the genes that are on chromosome 21 to see whether they actually are expressed at a 1.5 fold higher rate than those in a normal embryo because there is three chromosomes instead of two. So who are the people who are doing the research with you? I'm really lucky to have a fantastic team. So I have a PhD student who I've already mentioned, uh, Melanie Olds. So she actually comes from Fertility Associates. The other person who actually co-leads this project with me is Dr Zara Messina-Clark. She did her PhD with me 
uh, on sheep embryos, actually. And then she went off to Michigan State University and worked on cattle embryos. And then I was able to convince her to come back and work on this project with me together. So we're going to be meeting those two down in the lab at the moment. They're busy looking at some mouse embryos. Oh, let's go and have a look. Great. Thank you. So whereabouts are we, Melanie? We're in the um, tissue culture lab at the moment, and then next door we have our embryology lab where the embryos are are created and and flushed, and then they're brought in here to be cultured. Okay, so this is like the end of the process. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we've just got some incubators in here that are suitable for the growth of the embryos. So an incubator for an embryo has to be, what, a nice certain temperature and a certain humidity? Yes, that's right. And also the oxygen concentration and um, CO2 concentration need to mimic what's inside the uterus. So have you got any embryos in here at the moment? We do. Would you like to see them? I'd love a peek. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen an embryo. Okay, we'll just pop some gloves on just a moment. So you popped it on the microscope. Could you see these with the naked eye? Not generally, they're fairly, fairly difficult to see. Yeah, about a fifth of a millimetre. So yeah. they're quite. They're just. Yeah, just. You just can't see them. Yeah. So this is a blastocyst. You can see that it's just beginning to hatch out of its shell there, um, and so it will continue to hatch out, and then, obviously, if this was um, back inside the uterus, it would roam around for a couple of days and find a good spot to implant. So we've got um, these cells around the outside here. Those are called trophectoderm cells, and they're the part that makes the placenta, um, and they're the part that implants into the uterus. And then this ball of cells here in the middle, that's the inner cell mass. That's the part that makes the fetus. What is it about embryos that you find appealing? Well, first of all, embryology is, um, is just such a, a changing field, and it's very exciting, and it's really um, rewarding to be able to help people. But as, as you look at thousands of embryos, you do start to find them very beautiful. So this, is, um, this one here is definitely my favourite. So what about it makes it your favourite? It's got very clear trophectoderm cells, so it almost looks like a little golf ball. You can see all of those little cells there. It does look very dimply like a golf yeah, ball. Yeah, so it's just, it's just got a lot of cells that are clear and crisp, and um, yeah, you can see all of everything's well-defined, so it's just a good quality embryo. Yeah, so the quality of embryos are graded in the fertility clinic. The really interesting thing about aneuploidy is they embryos often look the same, whether they are, have normal chromosome number or abnormal chromosome number. And that's, that's where the problem lies, is that it looks like a great embryo, but it's actually got no chance of surviving. This could be an aneuploid embryo or a euploid embryo, and you wouldn't know until you test it and see what's inside the cells. When the embryos are first flushed, they're at um, a cleavage stage, so there's just maybe two to four cells, and then we culture them on for several days until they reach this blastocyst stage. Yes, so what we're hoping is that uh, we will test the length of incubation time required to get enough exosomes to be able to detect what the chromosomal makeup of the embryo is. So convenient time points might be day three um, but it may be that we've got to wait all the way to blastocyst development to actually get enough genetic material to uh, in the media to be able to be indicative of the chromosomal number in the embryo. And is that number of days the same for a mouse embryo as a human embryo or is it faster for a mouse? It's actually very similar which is um, great for this research because this is what we're obviously hoping to um, do it in humans as well and this is the stage this blastocyst stage is where human IVF labs will test the the embryo at the blastocyst stage and they just take a couple of cells from that trifecta derm that I was t- talking about 
So, yeah, so it's quite good. They're a good model because they use the same culture media um, and they have very, like, the, almost exactly the same growth times in those first few days. So, very convenient. What are you keeping them in? What, what's the medium, the liquid that they're in? Ah, so this is continuous culture media. It's an Irvine solution. Each embryo has one drop um, so that we can obviously collect all those exosomes just from that one embryo. And the media is, just mimics what's in the uterus and in the um, follicular fluid and that kind of thing. Gives it all its nutrients it needs because it's self-sustaining for those first few days. So in terms of the size of the exosomes, if that thing is a fifth of a millimetre, they must be absolutely tiny. Yes, yes, they're, um, they're nanometers, in fact, in size, so they're quite small. <laughs> yeah, very, very small. Obviously, they need to be to escape out of a cell, but I've actually got a machine that can test the number of exosomes that are secreted from the embryos? Yeah, that's right. It's using nanopore technology, so when the exosomes um, run through that pore, it disrupts the charge and we can actually measure the size and concentration of what's going through there. And we've recently, well, we just got this machine and we have managed to measure um, exosome concentrations in a single media drop. Uh, So it's early days, obviously, we need to do a lot more of this, but it's quite promising that we've been able to... Uh, get a concentration from a single embryo. And are you talking about low numbers or quite high numbers? Definitely low numbers. There's obviously quite a bit less in a culture media than there would be in, say, blood or serum, but still measurable. So, Zara, what are you up to? One of the things that we need to do for this project is to be able to pick which embryos are um, aneuploid. And so one of the ways that we're doing that is developing a set of probes which we're going to use to test which embryos actually are aneuploid. So So can you describe what a probe is to me? Because I I think when you hear the word probe, it sounds like you're going to be stabbing things. It It does sound bad. So what does Uh, it actually involve? Yeah, so in this case we're talking about DNA probes. So we've made small DNA molecules and what we've actually been doing now is attaching fluorescent molecules to them. So in theory, what we're going to try to do is use these fluorescent probes to pick out which of our embryos actually have extra chromosomes, so are aneuploid. We know that in our trisomic Down syndrome mouse model, they have an extra chromosome that's actually a fusion of chromosomes 16 and 17. So I've made two probes, one for chromosomes 16 and 17, and in our aneuploid embryos, they should f- show three fluorescent spots if they are aneuploid for each of the probes. So... That's theoretically what we're going to do. They should glow brightly. So there's quite a lot of things you have to develop when you're doing a project like this. That's right. So we have to actually develop the traditional methods, and and this is one of those traditional methods, before we can actually develop our exploratory method or our our innovative method. We don't want to send every single embryo off for next-generation sequencing. It takes a long time. It's very involved and it's very expensive. So what we're wanting is a, is a very quick look-see um, so that we can look at each embryo, look at the cells within those embryos, save a little bit of the embryo for our exploratory work and just determine whether that embryo is actually aneuploidy or euploidy, so normal chromosome number. Once we know that, then we know that when we take the other portion of that embryo, we know exactly what it is and, and we can compare the results that we get from our innovative methods with our traditional methods and make sure that they are they we have concordance between the two. I mean, this really is something that there's very few publications in the literature on this, so uh, there is some evidence that suggests that this is doable. It's a very, very new field, but 
it's so required. The fertility clinics are just crying out for a better method of testing for aneuploidy, and in particular, a non-invasive method that's cheaper, that more people will opt in for. That's the really important thing, to try and increase the IVF success rate with using some sort of technology like this. Many thanks. Janet Pittman is a reproductive biologist at Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington. We also heard from Melanie Olds and Zara Clark. Kate Fakaronga mai kwe kito tato au hurihuri kita reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, glaciers. New Zealand has a few, although not as many as we used to have. Most, but not quite all, are in the South Island. Climate expert Sean Eves from Victoria University of Wellington is interested in what the evidence from past glaciers can tell us about past climates. And looking into the future, glaciers are a sensitive barometer of changing climate. I meet Sean to talk ice. The recipe for a glacier, you need cold temperatures and precipitation. The cold temperatures partition precipitation into snow and rain, and snow is what the glacier wants, and the cold temperatures limit melt. So the colder the temperatures, the less of the snow and ice you will lose over the course of the year, particularly during summer. If you manage to keep some of your winter snow through the summer, then that will add mass and either sustain or start to build a glacier. So what defines where our glaciers are? Our glaciers exist in locations where those characteristics are met, And we like to think about this hypothetical surface known as a snow line. And this snow line is the theoretical surface at which uh, snow will survive over the course of a calendar year. In places where we have high topography, this may intercept the snow line and then we do get retention of snow. And if that snow line is too high and, and topography is low, then obviously we don't have snow building up and glaciers existing. So that's why we get glaciers in the mountains, particularly in the South Island. That's right. We have very high mountains around the central southern Alps, extending up above 3,000 metres in several cases. And generally our snow line in that location is about 2,000 metres elevation. Uh, So we're getting snowpacks building up above that. So below 2,000 metres at the moment, and we'll come to that, you wouldn't get a glacier, but at the moment they're hanging in above 2,000 metres. you do get glaciers that extend below 2,000 metres because the ice is flowing uh, under gravity and that's why we get snow-free ice surfaces of the lower glaciers that extend below the snow line. But the snow line defines where the snowpack exists and where the snow will enter the glacier. Then gravity takes over and transfers that mass down valley. So even though you're losing snow and some ice below the snow line you've got replenishment of that ice from the glacier deforming and flowing down valley. So we have hundreds hundreds of glaciers in the South Island? Thousands actually I think the last count was around 3,000. <laughs> well, we've just completed a updated inventory of the glaciers and that number has declined by some amount But yeah, I think there's a few thousand glaciers still up there, mainly very small in area, um, with uh, the few larger ones, uh, Tasman Glacier, Franz Josef, the famous ones that that people would know. What about the North Island? People might be uh, surprised to learn that we do still have glaciers in the North Island. It's hard to divine exactly how many. It really 
Uh, you start dealing with this question of what is a glacier and is there some size threshold for something to be classed as a, as a glacier. To me, a glacier is defined as a perennial body of snow and ice that's deforming under its own weight. And we know from the physics of how ice works that we need at least 30 metres of ice to actually develop a driving stress that will start that deformation process. Uh, but we don't actually know how thick the ice in the North Island is. Um, so to use that classification is difficult. I think there are about eight recognisable glaciers, all situated on the summit of Mount Ruapehu, uh, the volcano in the central North Island. This is the only peak in North Island that does extend above the regional snow line, so we do get snow uh, retained some years at the moment, not all years, on the summit, and that can supply mass to these glaciers. So I think there are about eight that are still recognisable as glaciers, and then there are a whole number of snow patches that might exist for several years, but uh, wax and wane um, on interannual timescales. And then there are other bodies that may be deforming, but we just don't have the data and, uh, to, to know if they are truly glaciers or not. So you said the snow line in the South Island is 2,000 metres. What mm. is it on Ruapehu? On Ruapehu, we think the snow line is at about 2,600 metres above sea level. And so this surface of the snow line, uh, it's not uniform in space. Uh, it is defined by climatic variables, but principally temperature. And because Ruapehu and the North Island uh, exists further north and closer to the tropics, it's surrounded by slightly warmer sea surface temperatures um, and we have slightly warmer air temperatures. Uh, that's why the snow line is at higher elevations. You have to go higher up the mountain before you start finding snow. Must be starting to get close to the summit of Ruapehu. It's very, very close. So Ruapehu has this broad summit plateau that exists at about 2,600 metres and it has narrower peaks that are part of the old volcanic edifice that extend above this threshold. The highest peak is Tahurangi, which is 2,797 metres above sea level, but it's just a very narrow piece of land sticking up um, so there's not a whole heap of area for snow to fall and be retained so once the snow line rises above summit plateau then we see the glaciers essentially cut off from input of annual snow and uh, and then we're just getting net melting and, and we'll see them retreat further. So as you say that snow line's a bit variable it's not set in concrete it goes up and down what's driving that? We have a noisy climate system one year to the next uh, is not the same in New Zealand, we're impacted by uh, climate modes such as El Nino oscillation. We have El Nino, La Nina years um, that are driven ultimately by sea surface temperatures uh, changing in the tropics, and that propagates through the atmosphere and ocean and means that one year uh, is not exactly the same as the other year. The climate system is incredibly complex and well described by chaos theory, and so we have a lot of noise from year to year. So even if climate change weren't a thing, we would have ups and downs in temperature and precipitation and other climate variables. Our weather wouldn't be constant all the time. So there's change from year to year, but there's also change over time spans of, I'm thinking, tens of thousands of years. I'm thinking the glaciations. So tell me about those and how they interact with glaciers. Uh, that's right. We know that climate does vary over longer time scales, and we see this in natural archives that preserve climate signals. 
one of these archives where we see this very clearly is in ice cores, for example. Here we get a nice timeline of uh, past temperature changes and, and other climate variables. And they tell us that over the timescales of tens to hundreds of thousands of years, Earth has transitioned between two states, really, a glacial mode and an interglacial mode. And actually, if we take the last cycle, for much of the last 100,000 years, Earth has been in a glacial mode. We've had uh, much larger glaciers in alpine regions, not only in New Zealand, but in Patagonia, South America. And we had ice sheets growing over the continents of the Northern Hemisphere, such as North America and Northwest Europe. Over 80 to 90,000 years of the last 100,000, Earth's temperature has been several degrees lower, atmospheric greenhouse gases were lower, sea level was lower, and the climate was quite different. About 20,000 years ago, that came to an end, and we transitioned to this other state, this interglacial mode. So we had melting ice over much of the northern hemisphere, the glaciers in the southern Alps started to retreat. That water going into the oceans caused sea level to rise. And we see in uh, ice cores as well that this was accompanied by uh, atmospheric greenhouse gas increase and temperature rise. So at the height of the last glaciation, there certainly would have been bigger glaciers on Ruapehu. What about other places in the North Island? So at the height of the last glaciation, the snow line across New Zealand and actually across much of the world was roughly 1,000 metres lower than present. So if we're at 2,600 metres on Ruapehu today, the snow line would lower to about 1,600 metres. That would mean that areas, mountains that exist around that elevation or are poking up slightly above that would start to retain snow perhaps over the course of a year. And if you think about mountains in the North Island, there aren't many that get up that high, uh, 1,600 metres um, is still quite high for the low mountain ranges we have here. The Ruahinis, the Tararuas, uh, the Kawekas all top out at about that elevation. So these mountains would have been just on the threshold of glaciation, and some of them might have looked like Ruapehu looked like today, very small glaciers clinging to the upper mountains. There's not a whole heap of evidence to confirm this, the most obvious and striking glacial landforms we have in the North Island outside of the volcanoes come from the Tararua Ranges and Park Valley. There's a very clear U-shaped valley, a river valley that's been broadened by glacial erosion, and there are some depositional landforms and piles of rocks that are characteristic of landforms that form at the margins of glaciers today. So if you want to know where glaciers were, you have to go looking for the signs they left in the landscape. Absolutely. So we look at glaciers today. We're very fortunate in New Zealand that we have glaciers present and we can observe how they are moving and how they're moving rocks and sediment around the landscape and how they're altering the landscape around them. And we can relate those processes and the landforms that result from them. And when we find these uh, landforms outside of glacial areas today, then it's giving us a clear sign that the glacier was here. <laughs> so there's tantalising hints in the Tararua's Tongarero, Taranaki, they would have had glaciers? Tongarero, yes. There are clear glacial landforms there. Mangatapopo Valley, people who do the Tongarero Alpine Crossing, the car park at the start of that walk is where the terminus of the glacier during the last glacial maximum would be. There, And as you walk up the valley, you're walking over a much younger surface, the volcanic products from Mount Narahoe and other nearby volcanic vents. But there are large ridges on either side of you that are 
uh, large accumulations of unconsolidated sediments and boulders that were deposited at the margin of a glacier that filled that valley at the height of the last ice age. So you said the snow line was about 1,000 metres lower. What was the average temperature then at that time? Uh, temperature would be about 5 to 6 degrees colder than present. So not, not much different to today. You could take our winter temperatures and apply that to, as summer, and, and that's, that's broadly what climate would have been like. So not as extreme as you might imagine for such great effects. Might have been a bit different looking in the South Island, though, with the snow line further south there. I've heard stories of glaciers stretching beyond what's our current coastline, like enormous glaciers. That's right, yeah. Uh, so where we have much higher mountains and a lowering snow line, uh, they can support much larger glaciers. And uh, particularly on the west coast, where there's only a narrow strip of land, which would have been slightly wider with a lower sea level, but there we see, again, we see similar landforms, these moraine features, which are these accumulations of boulders and sediment that define the margins of a glacier. On the plains of the west coast, they do project out into the sea today, and so we don't actually know exactly where the terminus of each glacier there was. Uh, we only know that it's beyond the current coastline, and the evidence has either been reworked as the sea level rose or it's buried beneath the sea, and we would need some geophysical imaging to, to have a look at it. So you've been looking in the past, tr sort of working out what had happened tens of thousands of years ago. What about going forward? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, there's no doubt that if temperatures keep rising, which we think they will, that the snow line will keep, keep rising. And because those glaciers are very close to the threshold for glaciation today, then that's not good news, and, and we will see greater losses and reducing inputs, which will reduce their mass overall. Exactly how that plays out is hard to predict on what time scales and uh, spatially as well. As glaciers start to get smaller and smaller, there are a number of subsidiary processes that um, become more important for their survival. Um, so they're not only defined by snow coming in and snow and ice going out, but there is other processes such as redistribution of snow by wind. Um, and this is only a minor portion of the mass balance of large glaciers. But for small glaciers, it can be very important for defining whether they exist or not. That's a process that's very hard to model with the computer simulations. And we would need to take that into account to understand better how these small glaciers will evolve in the future. There's also an interesting aspect of the glaciers on Ruapehu, but it also is involved in the Southern Alps, where we have rocks and sediment on the surface of the ice. This can insulate the underlying ice from uh, atmospheric heat fluxes. But like a blanket. Exactly like a blanket. So a small amount of sediment on the surface will actually enhance melt. It absorbs more radiation, and that can be transferred through a very thin sediment layer to the ice but you cross this threshold after about a few centimetres and then it becomes like a blanket and you start to insulate the ice. And that process is also quite poorly understood um, and that will definitely play a role in exactly how glaciers on Ruapehu but also in the Southern Alps will evolve over the next few decades. Thanks, Sean. Sean Eaves is a glaciologist and expert in past climates with the Antarctic Research Centre at Te Heringawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. And that's the show for this week. 
If you'd like to listen again, find photos and links, or subscribe to our email newsletter, then head on over to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll find Our Changing World, the podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll find us on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. I'm Alison Balance. Catch you next week. Namihi.